Hi, I'm Tanisha Collins from Future Men and Fatherhood, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that really knows how to rig a cage fight. That will make sense later. I'm your host, Craig, and we're here now to discuss the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Feels like every other week we're discussing the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which really isn't far from the truth at this point. But this one in particular was out in cinemas, still is. It's called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So joining me for this discussion about the Marvel martial arts extravaganza. It's Chris. Hello. When you think martial arts, who do you think of on this podcast? Me, of course. Naturally. I'm the correct person to bring in on this podcast. Yeah, to bring in someone. (laughs) Here I am. Here you are. Here you are. (laughs) Our kung fu expert. (laughs) Other martial arts are available. I don't know what some of them are called. Taekwondo. Karate. Why not? I know them all. I know the listeners to this podcast can't see me, but a Kung Fu martial artist, I am not. (laughs) Neither am I. Yeah, you work with what you've got. Exactly. And then hope for the best. (laughs) Which is a good message. Anyway, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. A mouthy title. Just start with a quick, spoiler-free breakdown. What did you think of this movie? Did you enjoy it? Did you hate it? Do you think it could stand to improve? I had so much fun with this film. I don't know if it was because it was one of the first sort of big blockbuster experiences that I had after lockdown and getting to go and see it in a little podcast crew of three of us going along to see it. But I had an absolute great time with this. I really enjoyed it. The characters all kind of fit into the universe immediately. Doesn't feel out of place. I think tonally they got it really right. And there's some little aspects that I maybe would have done a little bit less of. And we'll cover that in a bit. But overall, yeah, absolutely loved this. Yeah, I'd echo that. I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was really well put together. The action sequences were hella fun. The characters are great. Just a damn good time at the movies. And Marvel have done it again. And you'll get the detractors who say Marvel are running out of ideas and it's all the same and whatever, but that's not me. It's never going to be me. Well, it might be me. If they make a bad film, I'll say it was a bad film, but this isn't that. I enjoyed it a great deal and had a lot of fun with it and can't wait to see more from these characters as well, which we'll definitely talk about. So yeah. So let's just launch straight into spoilers. We might as well. We can't stay in the spoiler-free territory all day, can we? We have to make our way through some weird maze thing and Find the spoilers. I think we need some sort of lovable creature with no face to lead us towards the spoilers. I think we might be struggling for that, but I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Whatever spoiler thing I think of will appear now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're free to discuss spoilery stuff. So let's just get started with the characters. So we've got our lead, Shang-Chi, or Sean, as he starts off the film. He goes in hiding and calls himself Sean, which 
isn't the best cover story you can think of, but whatever. It worked for him for 10 years. Mostly because his dad wasn't looking for him for those 10 years, or always knew where he was for those 10 years. Starts off establishing that he's a bit directionless, and you eventually find out that he's running from his past. He's in a job that some would consider to be unfulfilling, although he loves it because he gets to spend time with his best pal and all that good stuff. I found him to be an interesting character, and as the film went on, there was more and more facets to him. The directionless stuff was a great cover at the beginning of the film, I thought. I like how it was. It seemed to start off as a, okay, now he's going to get drawn into a larger story, and now he's going to learn how about his powers, and now he's going to find out what he stands for and all this stuff. But it turns out he'd already been through a lot of that. He'd been through the training. He'd been through all that hardship. It was more that he was just running away from it. So his arc is about him finding purpose that works for him and going after that. I don't know if that was your take, but it was certainly something that was a bit of a through line for him. Yeah, you're kind of spot on. I also got led into thinking, oh, this is the point where he's going to suddenly learn that he has kung fu abilities or he's gonna like you say get drawn into a wider story and then have to train and then have to develop and it was like oh no he just had that all the time and wasn't using it he was just in hiding trying to have a nice chill life and they even have that discussion early on why would we want to go off and do something else then we'd have no time we'd be under all this pressure don't want any of that i love the fact that Actually, secretly behind that, he's sitting going, I've had that life or I've had part of that and I don't want it. And he's covering it with a smile in a joking way. And that's kind of how his character takes a lot of his development going forward, actually, is until you slowly unravel him through the film and getting to learn what's driven him to where he is and what's driven him towards his point of view. It's an interesting start. And I quite like how the film plays with expectation in a way. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, obviously mm. you'll know that's not the case, but the film starts it starts with that long Lord of the Rings-esque <laughs> montage of a battle. But what I mean is when the film starts and you see Sean as he is at the time, he gets up and he does his push-ups and then it cuts to this fancy car pulling up outside the hotel and then a guy gets out of it and then it shows him over there as the valet <laughs> and it almost sets up this, this is him, he's living this high life or whatever and then you see that he's serving this guy that's living the high life. And it's also an Asian gentleman that gets out of the car as well, which kind of points you at the, you could have this life sort of thing in a way, because it's here's another Asian guy that's got loads of money and is making you park his car. You could be doing this. It's almost telling you, it doesn't do anything with it, but it's, it's doing that, especially with his background. As you find out, he could be, very powerful and very influential, but he chooses not to be. Yeah, that's true. It does kind of mislead you at the beginning to thinking he's got that high life. And then when you actually see his place later on, he's like living in the back of a garage. <laughs> you see his place at the beginning, but it's just that one room. So yeah, it could be affluent. You just don't get a good look at it as such. And great character as well. He's just effortlessly charming. I'm going to pronounce these names horribly for the rest of this podcast. Except from Ben Kingsley, I can just about pronounce him. And Michelle Yeo, I know how to pronounce her name. But everyone else, I am going to butcher. But he's a very good actor. He's immediately likeable, really charming, great physicality when it comes to the fight sequences. It's just a good marriage of actor and character. And it's possibly because I haven't really seen him in anything. I know he's been big in Kim's Convenience, I think the show is. Mm -hmm. Some Canadian sitcom thing. People like him from that, but I don't know him from that. I haven't seen him in that. 
And obviously, I haven't seen the stock photos he used to take for Catalan <laughs> or whatever was doing the rounds online. Yeah. But great actor. It's one of those great things that Marvel does is zeroes in on a casting choice and you immediately see them as that character. Well, he almost campaigned pretty much on Twitter and, and whatnot for the role, didn't he? Hit me up when this is happening. <laughs> I should be Shang-Chi. He definitely wanted the role and he fits in really, really well. Like you say, perfect casting for this thing in your head when you're watching it you can almost fit them into the rest of the mcu immediately he just got the tone and hit the ground running and did a great job physicality wise are you right the way he holds himself in those fight sequences incredibly complex fight sequences we'll probably talk about them separately but when you see the training that he went through to do it and all the different styles that they use through the film they take jiu-jitsu moves taekwondo like you were saying and i'm trying to remember how they describe what the likes of jackie chan do where they're improvising with props on set and different things there is a proper name for it that i should have googled before recording this podcast but totally didn't (laughs) because we're bad at our jobs because we're terrible at our jobs jobs. (laughs) very bad at our jobs and we don't want to succeed i couldn't deal with the pressure if i succeeded his physicality when doing those things was amazing the commitment that he's went through to do it and the charm in which he passes it off as well is very good and some of the interesting stuff was when they delved into his backstory it is a bit flashbacky but they do make fun of that by having it cut off by various things <laughs> like the ordering dinner on the plane it's the beef or vegetarian we don't have any vegetarian so beef then yeah so you have the beef yes beef is all you have of course we'll have the beef they cut that off it is quite funny it's that intense yeah so my dad made me feel pain until i couldn't feel pain anymore and then it's like what do you want to eat on this plane? <laughs> it undercuts the intensity of it. And I think that's something this film does a bit too much of, actually, where you, it'll get into this deep stuff. And I think we'll talk about Katie shortly, but she's the character that every time someone says something like mythological or deep or intense or heavy duty, she'll come out with, oh, how crazy is this? <laughs> and it, I think it happened a little bit too often, but there were some times it worked really well, and that was one of them. But his backstory was interesting, that whole relationship he has with his father and wanting to escape that and being fueled by this loss as well it talks about how he lost his mother when he was young and how that changed his relationship with his father and his relationship with the world that he lived in as well and he just wanted to escape that and his dad gives him 10 years to go and realize his mistake i guess is the assumption but at the same time gives him 10 years to live his life and enjoy his life away from all that And obviously he doesn't lose anything that he was taught because as soon as the fight begins, he is right in there. Muscle memory kicks in. He's ready for action once again. But you get the impression that he's really enjoyed the lack of responsibility, the lack of expectation, and the lack of intensity in his life for those years. The training sequences do not look fun. That does not look like a nice place (laughs) for kids to learn and develop, does it? The fact that his dad plays so much of the blame on what happened to his mother on a, what was he, 10 years old? Less than 10, really? is just terrible. You can imagine what that did to him mentally over that time. So the fact that he managed to break out of that and then go on to lead what, at the beginning of the film, seems like a pretty normal life is incredible. There's a lot of development that has to happen from where he was at that point up to when we meet him at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and when the script flips and he has to get back into the freak show that was his old life, he sort of reluctantly moves through it 
At first, he's motivated by protecting his sister, who he thinks is in danger. Then it becomes about, we have to stop my father from doing something insane. And then it ends with the acceptance of his own role in the world, the Ten Rings, as in the objects, those actual rings, something he makes his own. And there's that message throughout about, take what we've given you and do your own thing with it. And that's what he gets from both parents. And you see in that sequence where Wenwu meets Lee and they fight and she's able to manipulate the rings, she turns them gold in the way that Shang-Chi turns them gold. That showcases, in a visual sense, that the two sides of his parentage are very different, have very different influence on him. And then he's able to bring that together at the end and do his own thing with it. It doesn't quite punctuate it as well as it could because all it is is making the rings a different colour and then he goes and fights a dragon or a weird interdimensional alien dragon thing. But at the same time, he ends the film committed to the fact that he is a hero and he is breaking away from what his father expected of him. And a big theme in this film is parental expectation because a lot of people have to live with that. A lot of people have to live with their parents wanting them to do things with their lives or being disappointed in what they've done with their lives or just thinking that their kids aren't maybe living up to the potential. And then there's that whole idea of the child might feel like they're letting down their parents by not amounting to what they consider to be something worthwhile. So you get a bit of that. I don't think Shang-Chi's issue is that he is worried about disappointing his parents. But I guess he wants to honour his mother. That's very much something that's on his mind. Definitely. It's honouring his mother's memory and not wanting his father to dishonor it's be better the fact that lee had that influence on his father and on him and his sister and that influence was taken away and he's tried to carry it forward as best he can despite his dad's influence and what his dad wanted him to do so yeah definitely he was influenced by that i didn't notice that his mother changed the color of the rings when she interacted with him i missed that beat i I knew that he changed the color of them and i didn't notice that the mother did but like you say you do see that merging of styles in the way that he fights like his dad but then with his mother it's almost like an elemental style it's more grounded and you get that through a little bit the training sequence with michelle yo i think that was a bit of a short training time to learn all he needed to for that particular fight (laughs) But it's film magic. It all happens in that time. You can learn how to be a very good archer and you can learn that elemental fighting style very quickly. It's film magic. Yeah, none. Show me how she did it. Sean, brilliant. He's just such a quick study. It's amazing. There's a very big element about finding your own purpose. And you do get this thing with Lee and Wenwu as well because she made him turn away from his despotic tendencies It doesn't really tell you what the Ten Rings are up to during the time that they're raising the kids, but he puts the rings in a box, doesn't think twice about it. It's only when she dies that he goes back to them. So she's a positive influence on him as well. So it's almost like Shang-Chi doesn't want to be part of that because he knows his mother didn't want him Mm. to be a part of that. But using the rings in the way that she would use them separates him from that and gives him something to push forward. And that's ultimately the lesson he learns. So he ends the film just by, I guess looking for what he's going to do next. He hasn't necessarily got a defined purpose at this point because he does end the film before the post-credit scene. He does end the film almost back where he started in a way because one of the first scenes is him in a bar with those two friends 
chatting about, look how great our lives are and what are you doing with yours? And then they're telling the story of what happened with the film, which is quite funny. And their friends are like, yeah, this is nonsense. What are you talking about? There's no way this happened. And then Wong shows up and (laughs) it did happen. But at the same time, he does go back to the life that he enjoyed. There's a real sense that that's not something to give up. And maybe his next appearance or the next film, I assume there will be a sequel, a solo sequel for him, will be about him figuring out what he does with what he's learned and what he's overcome and all that stuff. Yeah, sort of finding his purpose. He's obviously found a calling, but then it's what do you do with that newfound power and new responsibility and what is going to find him on the back of that? Because there's a ton hinted at at the end of the film. Yeah, he learns that he shouldn't have run from his family and his past and all that stuff. But also he learns that he doesn't need to be a part of it either. So the film ends with him reset in a way and now he can do mm. what he wants. Whatever that is, we don't know. And he doesn't know, I would imagine. But it's like Banner says, welcome to the circuits. <laughs> you're part of something now. And one way or another, you're going to be involved. So find something. Do you have anything else on Shang-Chi? No, we'll probably end up touching back on moments as we go. No, no, we're never going to talk about the lead character of this film again for the rest <laughs> of this podcast. It just ain't going to come up. It's just not going to happen. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> the title character. We've covered it. We've covered we'll it. Move on Done. We're mentioning again. <laughs> Bosh. Finished. Yeah. So let's move on to Katie, his best pal, Aquafina. She is similarly directionless in a lot of ways. As in, she has her family pressuring her to find a better job. She's like, I like my job. I don't want a new one. And Shang-Chi says, yeah, she likes her job. We both do. So why does she need another one? And you get this thread of her inability to commit to a direction in life. She explicitly says that to the archery master guy. That, yeah, she does something and then... As soon as she gets remotely good at it, she gets sick of it and starts again and does something else and so on. In a way, she mirrors Shang-Chi's arc. And the film keeps coming back to her and keeps focusing on her development in the same way that it focuses on his, which I thought was really good. I like the way they have a kind of parallel development that, that functions throughout the film. And I enjoyed how that continued to play out. I really enjoyed that character and, and I found her really engaging throughout. Yeah, you're right. It did sort of mimic shang chis ongoing story as well the sort of lack of direction i kind of like the line of if you don't aim for anything you'll never hit anything if you don't find something to target if you don't find something that you're wanting to strive towards you're never going to get there it did kind of hit home a bit it's not really much of a disguised metaphor in that way <laughs> when they did it with the, the target <laughs> the actuary whatever it's not massively disguised but i was like do you know what it, it fits really really well you've got to find something that's yours something that you want to but you've got to give it a try otherwise you won't know if that was your calling or not if you just are too scared to pick something up or try something then you're never going to find that purpose you're never going to accidentally stumble across it if you never go there and i thought that worked for the character i mean obviously a lot of the time katie is used as like you said earlier on the comic relief the tension breaker the person who needs backstory explained to them because when Chong Shi and his sister are in a room talking about their backstory, they wouldn't talk about their backstory unless Katie was there. Because everything would already be implied and known. So a lot of the time she's used that kind of device. They did the driving thing with her as well. <laughs> oh, she's a really good driver. So that was another aspect to bring with the table. And I was a little bit worried that they were going to go down a sort of stereotype route at one point. Because it's when you see her interacting with her family 
at home and they start putting all the oh you should be getting married soon and you need to have a new job and be successful you've got to give me grandchildren all in that scene i was like oh no is this gonna be are they gonna go really really stereotypical with it but they didn't they played on it really really well and moved on from it quickly and and didn't really ramp that up at all for the rest of the of the film so that i was happy about as well yeah, and I think there was a lot of Asian people behind oh. the camera as well. So there would be a, a firm check on that. And we're not equipped to really have this conversation because neither of us are Asian. Mm. Fair enough. We can't really have this conversation. But I can speak anecdotally about like, a couple of things that I've been exposed to across my life, just in terms of people of Asian descent I've met and so on over the years. There was a girl at uni that I knew that her dad apparently said to her she didn't make a million pounds by the time she was... I think it was 25, he was going to disown her. It's a cliche of daughters in Chinese families having a harder time than sons in Chinese families. Not that this film does anything with it and not that this person I met was a cliche, but it's just, that's what she told me. And I was like, okay, that's crazy. I can imagine my parents trying to disown me when I didn't make a million by the time I was 25. When I was 25, I was in negative figures in my bank hmm. account, so they'd be really disappointed in me in that respect. But that's the way it is. And yeah, there is an element of that. Again, it's the parental expectation. It's the familial expectation. It's family obligation or perceived family obligation. Although you don't get the impression that Katie is necessarily pressured into doing those things. She just gets ripped about them now and again, which you get in families anyway. You see it in a lot of things where you get these burnout characters in sitcoms particularly. Here's your 25-year-old brother that dropped out of college and hasn't had a job since. <laughs> he just sits here and eats our food, mooches off our stuff. It's that kind of idea, isn't it? That's not exclusive to Asian families. It's a universal idea in a way. And you don't get the impression that Katie gets a hard time about it as such. She gives as good as she gets. It's clearly a conversation that they have almost every day around the breakfast table. And she's like, just shut up. I like my life. I'm going to go to work now. That kind of thing. And... Sean, as they know him, has just shown up to eat their food again. What does this guy do? What's his purpose in this family or adjacent to this family? And why aren't you two ever going to get together? And we'll talk about that because I do have thoughts on that after a conversation that I had with someone else recently about this film. So we'll get to the whole relationship side of it because it is an interesting topic that we, we should discuss. In terms of Katie not having direction in her life or not aiming at anything as the metaphor is, it's the same message as... Your chances go up when you put in an application, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, well, you never get the job if you don't apply for it. It's that same message. But you never get the impression she's never tried anything. Because she does talk about she takes up hobbies or whatever, and as soon as she starts getting remotely good at it, she gets bored and moves on. So it's almost like she's tried a lot of things, but none of them have fulfilled her. Mm. And I don't know if she's just high-functioning in that way. She just can't settle on something. I don't know why archery suddenly became that thing that she could commit to. Maybe killing dragons helps you with that. <laughs> I can kill dragons. That's so cool. I'm going to stick with this. It seems all right. Or being a superhero. It gives you a reason to get good at it when there's the soul-sucking creatures and the dragon. It does give you an incentive. It does. Yeah. If I don't hit this, everyone will die. So give it a go. But Katie was a really good character, and I liked Aquafina. She was very charming. And I loved the back and forth they had. The friendship felt very lived in. There was some on-the-nose dialogue, such as, I've known you half your life. I don't need you to say that. I already get that vibe from you. I know you've known each other for a long time. You don't need to tell me. It was really well developed from the start. It was a lived-in, natural, best friends who have... How do I describe it? They've formed a really close 
friendship, but it, it doesn't feel like it's a friend zone thing. It just feels like they've got a really good bond with each other. They get each other. They understand their mindset and just have a lot of fun. The karaoke sequence just seems really natural. Well, we really should get an early night and everything before work tomorrow, or we could just (laughs) go out. It it just seems like a very lived-in friendship. I don't know if they just met as work colleagues and then it developed more, or if they met before work. I'm trying to remember what the story was. They explain it. There's something about he's getting mocked for being Asian and his English isn't very good. And she stands up for him and then they're friends after that. I forget where they say that they met, but they talk about when they first met. Yeah, so that seems like if she's stuck up for him, and presumably at that point as well, he's been looking for a new home or looking for somewhere to settle down. That might have been a deciding factor on him deciding to stay in San Francisco at that point. If he's been walking about trying to find somewhere that he wanted to go or to feel safe, as soon as someone stood up for him, he's like, oh, this is the kind of place that I can stick around. So you can understand how that would develop from there. Feeling safe when he could rip their heart out and throat <laughs> to them as they die. But yeah, <laughs> but I take your point. Emotionally <laughs> safe, I guess, rather than that, yes, he would completely <laughs> tear them to pieces if he wanted to. Yeah, yeah. he would annihilate them with one hand tied behind his back. But he needs Katie to stand up for him. <laughs> It was a very good friendship, and it's a good time to just talk about that as well. So there's a few references throughout the film to the potential for them to be more than friends, and this brings in a much larger conversation as well. It's not something I really thought about an awful lot, because I'll get to it, but did you feel that there was vibes towards them being something more than friends throughout the film, or do you think it was just a strong friendship? There was a couple of moments I picked up on, I've seen it twice, but on my first viewing there was a bit where he's going into the cage fight and he's made to take his shirt off. And she looks up and she sees him shirtless and she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> she has that kind of look that's, oh, I never thought about this before. I never pictured this. So that was one bit. And then there was a couple other bits where there was just a couple of lingering looks and things like that that seemed like there was a bit more there. And obviously people are constantly saying, when are you going to get together? And they just like, nah, 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 not us, nah, never. Or, no, no chance. Ugh, doesn't say that, but you might as well. I don't know is the answer. I don't know if there's a potential for a romantic connection there. I'm kind of the same as you, where the beginning of the film heavily goes at the they are friends and like i said earlier on it's not like a friend zoning kind of thing it's not that they've tried to be a couple and it's failed and they've ended up in that friend space i genuinely think it's like the characters haven't really thought about it or they've always dismissed it and being through that bunch of near-death experiences and that development together brings them closer and they suddenly start realizing that when each of them is in fret how much they care for the other. You don't realise how much you care about someone until you can't see them. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and that line also applies to the fact that you're seeing someone that could fall off of a skyscraper, off a scaffolding block to their death. In that moment, you would realise how much you care for that person. When you're thinking, I don't want my life to go without them. And I think that brings them closer by the end of the film. I think they're definitely hinting at more of a relationship by the end. I mean, they're already doing like a couple's date at the beginning of the film. That sort of meal date where it's two couples going out. That's not 
two pairs of friends going out. That's almost like a couple's date when they're at the restaurant. How did you first meet? What introduced you to each other? Oh, how are you doing? How's the kids? How's the job? How's the That's like a couple's date in the restaurant. That's not a bunch of friends just hanging out. So... I don't know. I'm with you. I think they're friends at the beginning, but by the end, that final restaurant scene where Wu rudely interrupts them, I think they're more of a couple then than they were at the beginning. You mean Wong? Wong, sorry. Rudely. No, I don't know. Is he rude? I suppose he is. He steals a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we'll talk about Wong later. The relationship thing is not something I gave an awful lot of thought to, but I had a conversation with someone recently about this, and they pointed me in the direction of an article that I'll put in the show notes as well and i do agree with this something that's been very diminished across disney output and i suppose a lot of blockbusters as well over the past few years has been attraction in characters you'll remember the superhero formula going back to i don't know let's say spider-man we'll start there or x-men you've got here's the hero here's his love interest they're going to dance around for a bit they'll be tortured they'll be Mm -hmm. driven apart by this secret and Every superhero movie had that, especially the origin movie had, here's your lead character, here's their love interest. And Marvel were doing that until, well, they're still doing it, I suppose, because Doctor Strange, you had Christine, who had no real purpose in the plot other than to be kind of a love interest. But they don't do anything with even that. And even the early MCU films, Iron Man's got Pepper, Tony Stark, Iron Man. (laughs) That's his hero (laughs) name. Tony Stark has Pepper. Bruce Banner has Betty in his film. Thor has Jane. Captain America. Again, I'm doing it again. Steve has Peggy, etc. And those films did have love stories in them. Those early ones did. Until the Disney acquisition happens. And then they stop doing them. And it's very strange that they dismiss it in that way and and don't make it part of the story anymore. And yeah, I'm fine with it because throwing in a forced romantic subplot into a film that doesn't really need one's a bit pointless isn't it it's just oh god here's the scene where they get together even though they shouldn't and whatever it gets really boring especially when every single one of them's the same i suppose in spider-man far from home there is his pursuit of mj throughout that film and then he's pursuing liz in the first film as well so that's in there but again it's very much sitting in the background and they're not really doing anything with it anymore and then if you look at say the star wars films you have this suggestion that Finn likes Ray in the first one. In that way, he's attracted to her and then they just forget about it later on. And someone said, what's wrong with having characters that are attracted to each other in these films? Why is that such a turnoff for the people making them or the people making decisions on them? But this article I was pointing to, it's on a website called Blood Knife and it's titled, Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny. <laughs> it's a great title. And it talks about how modern films have gone away from that and it used to be very prevalent in other films and it was just part of the makeup of it and sometimes it'd be natural and now it seems unnatural for it not to be there and i don't know if shang chi is necessarily an example that proves how bad an idea is to ignore it completely but i do think it has a bit more not a will they won't they but it has a bit more of a undercurrent of that potential than some others do i just found it interesting because it was just out of a conversation i was having with someone else about this film and it just brought in all of that it's really interesting i don't know with the marvel films you're sort of saying the disney acquisition being the marker for that but is it not the fact that a lot of the origin stories were told by that point you can't introduce a new character with a new romance because we're not introducing any new characters a lot of the films that came after the disney acquisition were the sequels and the team-ups and the large ongoing 
plot. So there weren't any new character pairings for a romance to flourish. There was still a few, Ant-Man and so on. There's the scene in the first Ant-Man where he and Hope kiss and you're like, where did this come from? <laughs> we weren't doing this throughout the film at all. Yeah, Ant-Man and Hope you've got there. And like you say, Peter and MJ, then Homecoming and Far From Home. But yeah, a lot of the Marvel films up until this point have been the sequels or the follow-ups. So those relationships are either already established or in there. I think you're right. There is a will-they-won't-they in Shang-Chi. I think by the end, I'm on the same side as the parents in Katie's family. They should. They make a great couple. <laughs> you ship them. I sh- <laughs> There's lots of people out there that think Steve and Bucky should have been a couple and all that stuff. There's every possible. And they're correct. They're all and I wonder if that... <laughs> well, why not? And I wonder if there's an element of that. Let's not pair up our characters so that the fans can go out there and speculate as to who might pair up among other stuff. And I do agree that post Disney acquisition, there's maybe less of opportunity to introduce new characters, or there was less of that happening for them to have their default love interest or whatever. But at the same time, I think it's noticeable across a lot of Disney releases in particular. Star Wars, I've already mentioned. There's no real suggestion of romantic chemistry between any of the characters in any of the films they've released solo i suppose is the exception there but you already had that as being a relationship when the film started and things like that i don't really know what i'm trying to say here about this but i do find it interesting that it's something that seems to have fallen by the wayside in a lot of big franchise properties and a lot of blockbuster films when it is a very natural part of life shoehorned in love stories is never something i'm that interested in go back to our coverage of cw superhero shows where we talk about love triangles and how much we hate them and how much we don't need them. You don't tend to get these in Marvel films anyway, but at the same point, I think if they'd forced a romance to come to something by the end of this film, we'd be talking about how "Eh, it doesn't really feel earned. In the same way that I just said about Scott and Hope and Ant-Man, where did this come from? Because it doesn't come from anywhere because the film never set it up, but they did it anyway. It's true. It's a conversation to have in the air and we can sort of monitor it, I suppose, as we go through other introductory stuff or Disney Plus shows that will focus on particular characters, things like that. We'll see how that all goes. But certainly when they just ignore it as being part of something, because in a lot of Marvel movies, the characters are very focused on whatever the objective is in the film, whatever that is. So Steve Rogers cannot be interested in romance because... He's got to protect the American way. And Tony Stark is already in a relationship with Pepper that they barely talk about. It's a comfortable relationship, so they don't have to talk about it. And even then, none of the other Avengers, other than Wanda and Vision, I suppose, hook up in any way. And the Wanda and Vision stuff, you see them get together off screen. They're already together in Infinity War. It doesn't happen on screen at all. It's weird. It seems to be a plot that people are afraid to play with now. Uh, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it, and I'll, I'll need to read the article from the show notes. Yeah, it's an interesting article. It's in the show notes. I'll say the title again because it's such a funny title. Everyone is beautiful and no one is funny. <laughs> Great title. The article's very good as well, and it makes you think about the differences between filmmaking decades ago and filmmaking now. So Katie, that was her, and she's definitely more than just a love interest. I mean, I don't think she is a love interest at all. I think that's not really something to do with her. But there's far more to her than that, and she's very well-rounded, very fleshed out, and has her own distinct purpose, independent of just being Shang-Chi's best friend, which is great. Yeah, good character, good introduction to her, and look forward to seeing her in the other films. Yeah, she'll be back. 
course she will. Now up is his sister. Let's talk about Xiling. Xiling. I can't pronounce her name. His sister. Unlike Katie, does seem, at least to me, to be there more of an enabler for his arc than having one of her own. They do touch on her history and her feelings a little bit, but most of the time it's just in relation to him, as in Shang-Chi. And even her relationship with her father is more about how it's different to Shang-Chi's relationship with him. So there was real potential for more to be done with that character. And perhaps she could have represented the other side of that parental expectation. And they could have explored that through both of them, having different views on it. But they don't really do it. She's just obscenely capable. She's even set up her own empire where cage fights happen and things like that. And it's just something she did in the past, so she's very capable. But it's kind of disheartening how she fades into the background after a point. You're right. She does kind of disappear in the plot a little bit. Because obviously the film turns around and goes, and this is our protagonist, so now he goes forward from here. It's one of the things of, and because he's in the title, he moves on. And she's left in the village. It's that, and now at this point our character needs to go forward and save the day and be the one that comes out at the end because that's the title card. You're right as well that a lot of what she does on screen is kind of defined by the two men in her life, her brother and her dad. I liked the fact that she was training in secret. She was overhearing the lessons and practicing herself to teach herself to be pretty much their equal. She beats him in the fight in the ring. As much as she has the element of surprise to a point in there and can maybe go on a bit of the shock and awe, she takes him out at the beginning. She shows that she is his equal, if not better, at that point. And she's managed to build this empire all by herself. I don't know how young she must have been when she started her underground fight ring or inherited her underground (laughs) fight ring, but she's definitely got herself established there. And the fact that you end the film with her going, oh yeah, I'm totally going to dismantle dad's empire. Lol, jokes, I'm taking it over for myself. (laughs) She was a badass before the beginning of this film. So of course she's going to take dad's empire and do with it as she will. She's training women and men now, boys and girls. She's taking it and she's doing her own twist at it and she's capable enough to do it. But yeah, like you say, when they arrive at the village... Pretty much from there, she disappears a little bit. I can only think it's because of the conceit that this film is based around introducing the title character, not necessarily the sister. But for a a first-time performance on screen, I think she did a fantastic job as well. This is the only thing that she shot. She's not been in TV or anything before. She went straight into doing a Marvel movie. So (laughs) performance-wise... And with the fight sequences and everything like that, what a performance. What a first outing. She stood out. The character stood out. And I've mentioned Ant-Man already, but it's similar to Ant-Man in the way that you've got the female lead who is, I suppose Aquafina here is the female lead, but you've got a female character that is, in the case of Ant-Man, more capable than he is. In Ant-Man, it's that she could be doing this. She could do this in her sleep. She's ready for this. But... Hank Pym wants to put Scott in for reasons and she gets pushed aside where here it's never in doubt that she's as capable as he is. That's proven every time she appears and with every word she says and so on. And they do make it part of the plot that her father focuses on him more than her. Like you say, it's the overhearing the lessons, teaching herself, figuring it out on her own. 
But they could have made it more part of the narrative by having her be the other side of that coin. Shang-Chi sees life one way. She sees it a different way. They're both influenced by their father in different ways. Because there isn't really any meaningful final scene that she has with her father. I mean, he dies. He has his soul taken. But she's not there. So you don't even find out her reaction to learning he's dead. That's true, actually. Yeah, she doesn't get that meaningful final moment. I just found it a bit odd that you've got this character that has rakes of potential. And obviously it's Marvel. They can pick it up later. But they could have done it in this film. And I think it could have enhanced the overall story in a way. But yeah, the film is called Shang-Chi. It's not called Shang-Chi and his sister or whatever. It's Shang-Chi. So he is the focus. But she had the potential to be. And I think she's brought in for a specific purpose. And then sort of forgotten about a bit. Even though she has all the same challenges that he has. I can't disagree with you. I think you're spot on. And like I say, it's just the conceit of the film, I think, and the way it's done. But there's tons of potential with what you can do with that character in either a follow-up film to this or through any of the Marvel TV shows and different bits. There's potential for this character to pop up. Yeah, well, the Ten Rings will return, as said at the end of the credits, isn't it? It'll be interesting to see what they do with the Ten Rings. Are they going to be the new Hydra? So they're just going to show up everywhere and <laughs> ruin someone's day? They've always been there. That's the thing. That's the whole point of them. They've existed for thousands of years or whatever. So they've always been there. They've been co-opted, as we'll talk about soon. But she takes them over. So in a way, she gets what she wants. She gets that recognition. She gets that leadership position that she already had. And I liked the scenes that she shared with Katie as well. Katie's the only one that listens to her explicitly in a way asks her what have you been doing all this time and I didn't know he had a sister and she's like I was building my own empire so I wasn't going to get let into my father so I had to build my own she's like oh yeah (laughs) it's that yeah you go girl type (laughs) reaction that was good and it was Katie just punctuating it again that was one of the instances of that working I thought where Katie is concerned (laughs) it's true I forgot about that woman what were you doing I was building my criminal empire hell yeah just empire I don't think she says it was criminal (laughs) Wenwu I hasten to call him a villain. I don't think he necessarily is. He's an obstacle in in a way, and he represents a lot, and there's a lot to overcome where he's concerned. But he's quite a complicated character, and of course he has to be because he's lived such a long life. It's the burden of longevity, isn't it? He's lost a bit of perspective on what's important, what to care about, and you get the impression that before he met Lee, he was very cutthroat, very passionless, very militaristic and conquest was the name of the game where he was concerned and so on until he meets Lee and then that softens him and they raise kids together and he gives up the 10 rings and he doesn't give them up he puts them in a box he keeps them but he puts them in a box intending never to use them again I like the little bits of humanity you would get from him such as he's playing with the dance mat with the kids and things (laughs) like that that was a really sweet little moment other things like that He's a very emotional person because when his wife is killed, he goes and seeks bloody vengeance by murdering the people that did it to her and things like that. So he's a very powerful, very emotionally driven man, but he's also very tempered in the way that he's managed to run this organisation for thousands of years or hundreds of years or however long he's been alive. And he's very complex. It's very strange that he would be so easily duped by the voice of his wife coming from this far-flung place Although it makes sense in a way because he's never processed that loss and he's never properly accepted it. And he knows he lives in a magical world where things are possible that other people don't think are possible. So I can see why he would pin all his hopes on, all I have to do is break down this wall and I'll get her back. You can see why he would be convinced by that. But yeah, fascinating character. And the way they 
play around with him being a villain, not a villain, his redemption in a way before he dies, how misguided he is, how consumed by loss he is, his desire for power, all that stuff. I think it all mixes together brilliantly. This is one of my favourite villain, not villains in the MCU, I would say. It's one of the most understandable, from their point of view, villains. I'm just going to say villain, but put the inverted commas around it. Because you get exactly where he's coming from. You understand that loss, that grief that he's had. The person who was strong enough and had enough of an impact on him after all those years, those hundreds of years, for him to give up the power and the quest for power that he had had, that big opening montage of trying to acquire as much power and as much influence as possible, and he gave that up for this one person, and they're gone. And then in the background, one day he starts hearing their voice calling out for help. Well, of course he's going to try and resolve that, isn't he? And as you say, he's aware that he's in a magic world. The only bit I would say is that in all his reading and all the documentation and all the articles and scrolls that he's read, at no point is there a warning that they can mimic voices and and try and lure people. (laughs) That's the bit that in my head I'm like, "Ah, would someone not write that in one of these many magical instruction manuals that are lying about on one of these scrolls? Beware, it, it can mimic the voices and try and make you do things that you don't want to do and it's behind this wall. Maybe that's his arrogance. Maybe he's like, nah, wouldn't happen to me. The voice I'm hearing yeah, is genuine. Yeah, I've got enough experience. I know. I think it even says the line at one point, I know my wife's voice. I know my loved one's voice. I wouldn't mistake it for anyone else. Did he not say, I could feel her here with me yeah, as well? Yeah, it might, be, says it might like be in a line like that. Yeah. But yeah, truly understandable. I'm like you, I also like the human side of this character, where he's laughing about them taking his organisation and trying to come up with a name for him and calling him the Mandarin and naming him after food, (laughs) after a chicken dish. Him having that sense of humour also with the... Uh, like you say, the flashback, the kid's dance mat, bits like that, just that human glimpse into the character who is immensely experienced. But you think about how long he's been around and this organisation has been around that he's formed, the things that he's seen come and go. I really enjoyed this character. I, I thought it was really, really well done. I think it was right for them to take him out at the end of this film because I don't think you could do any better with him. I think it's the right motivation that you need. You need to make space for Shang-Chi to have his own story. You have to make way for his sister to have her own story and, and to pull forward from here. But as a character for our protagonist to go against, it's the correct one. It's the right thing. It's stepping out from behind your father. It's something to face your father despite the fact that you yourself would want your mother to be behind that wall, if all possible. If you were hearing her voice coming back from there, you would want her out. It's that really understandable point of view. So I thought it worked really well. And it's the parents don't have all the answers all the time, or even some of the time. It's that idea. It's Shang-Chi that has to tell him, no, this is nonsense. Of course she isn't behind that wall. And it's a very obvious point to make. It's clearly a deception, but he's so consumed by that loss, he's so fixated on wanting her back that he just can't see the truth of it. And he's devoted his 
life to this. He's devoted his organization to this. He's been waiting for that day where he can get in there and break down mm. that wall. And he doesn't care about the consequences of that. He doesn't care about what it's going to unleash because he just feels that it's right for him. And I guess he feels it will bring his family back together as well. So it's all that, but he's very human very flawed, very interesting. Tony Lung, great in the role. And I do like that he's the Mandarin without being the Mandarin. They danced around that. Well, yeah, I am the Mandarin, I suppose. I've had a lot of names and that was maybe one of them, but it's not important. (laughs) It's just (laughs) gloss over it. I'm not an Iron Man villain, but he has the Ten Rings, which, by the way, are very different than comics, but we'll talk about them at some point later on. But he has these magical devices that give him power and... He believes that that power is everything he needs to shape the world in his own way or shape his family in his own way. And then, as we've said, Shang-Chi finds his own way to use them. And part of their final conflict is about how he uses them differently. But there's also the fact that Shang-Chi is outclassed by him, just get chucked in the lake pretty easily when they <laughs> initially fight. But yeah, great character, just very interesting. Not villain, but villain. And like the conversation they had at dinner, the Mandarin conversation, the world was brought to its knees by an orange. (laughs) (laughs) One of the quotes so good. And where he was saying, Katie, what's your Chinese name? And she tells him, and these names tell us who we are. They tell us where we came from. He puts a lot of stock in the past and where he came from and what informed all that. And he believes that other people should do the same as well. So there's all sorts of facets to him. It's a shame that this could be the only appearance of him, although there might be some prequel stuff where they'll force him in somewhere, somewhere along the line. I would say flashbacks you're going to get. As much as I would love to see that performance again, I don't think story-wise they would have as good a use of them until that point. Flashbacks I think you're going to get. Without a doubt. There'll be a flashback where Nick Fury always knew him or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. There will be some point where the Ten Rings organization is involved in something and it's a time travel or a show that's based back then and it'll give them an excuse to bring him in, I think. Yeah, probably. But yeah, his death felt a bit right. It's that necessary step in Shang-Chi stepping out of his father's shadow. He's now casting no shadow. Again, it's a bit soon, and I think in the film it's very quick and not necessarily earned as such. They do have that brief fight in front of that big wall, and then when Wu sacrifices himself to save his son, and then the rings go to him and all that stuff. So it's a very quick moment, and it doesn't quite have the impact that it needs to. And as I said, there's no real final scene between him and his daughter, which is a missed opportunity, I think. Yeah, in the village, when they first arrive, I think there should have been some form of confrontation between him and both of his children i think that would have worked better and then create a reason for him to run off and for shang chi to be the one that chases after him rather than it just being that he gets spotted sort of sneaking behind the village to run off (laughs) and then one of them goes and follows i think it would have been better for there to be a bit of a confrontation or a conversation before that point Maybe, but I understand why you might not have been able to get it into the fight sequence. It's where he shows up with all his henchmen, and then he goes inside a building, and it's only Shang-Chi yes. that follows him. That's the moment where I think it should have been both of them. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Yeah, but good character, really good, really engaging, really watchable. Great in the fight sequences, but of course Tony Long is great at that mm. anyway. The scene where he meets Lee 
is really cool. That courtship fight, as I've described it in the agenda that I put together for this, because that's what it is. It's very much a dance, isn't it? They start off by fighting and then they're courting each other by doing that. And they're complimenting each other by anticipating moves and so on and moving the rings around between them. It's really good, really top stuff. Uh, An incredibly well done sequence. At first, it's meant to be a confrontation and then it becomes, like you say, courtship or or sort of flirtatious it's well i'm gonna do this oh are you well i'm gonna do this back to you (laughs) it's just stylistically with the 360 moves that the camera's doing throughout as well in that setting that they built for it especially with lee's elemental style the very fluid movement in comparison to his that's more of an aggressive fit but then you see him softening up through that fight as well so yeah i thought that sequence was fantastic yeah but one of the names he went by was the mandarin let's talk about the other guy that went <laughs> by the mandarin we had the i don't know if it was expected i suppose i kind of expected it when i thought that they were going to be more explicit about tony long playing the mandarin but they weren't. It was just a throwaway reference. But we had Ben Kingsley's Trevor Slattery, who last appeared in, well, a short film that is now available on Disney Plus and became available on Disney Plus before this film came out, curiously. So it's almost like, watch this, because this is important. Mm. But he predominantly appeared in Iron Man 3. Trevor Slattery, a drug addict actor from the UK somewhere. In this film, it's Liverpool. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the last time, but whatever. He's back. And he's just as confused and pathetic as he was last time. And he's here and he has quite a big role in this film, a much bigger role than I would have expected. So what did you think of having Trevor back? Is this a character you liked? And what did you think of the twist in Iron Man 3? I don't know if we've <laughs> discussed it. We probably have on earlier podcasts. But what did you think of the twist in Iron Man 3? And what did you think of having him back here? Okay, so the twist in Iron Man 3, I didn't have too much of a problem with, but only because I didn't know going into Iron Man 3 the backstory and the character and how that had been done in the comics. I think if people were invested in the Ten Rings and wanting to see that being brought into the MCU and instead were presented by Trevor Slattery, I think I would be peeved as well. But as it wasn't there, I thought it was okay. For appearance in this, I was kind of expecting it because annoyingly, I read an article, or I at least saw the tease of an article in the run-up to Shang-Chi coming out going, the things you should watch before Shang-Chi, and it was all to do (laughs) with the Mandarin. And I was like, oh. So, of course, when he appeared, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense because this article said so. I liked the fact that he was kept alive, and he was performing Shakespeare, I think, was it? He was performing (laughs) as Shakespeare to the men because they liked it, and that's how he was being kept alive. I thought, of course, this is like a great improviser who's managed to survive so many different things now. Of course he's managed to survive in this situation. Being kept around as a kind of pet, as a joke, as a laugh by Wen Wu makes sense. He's taking the mickey out of the fact that someone tried to use the Ten Rings name, and this is what they did. And as his novelty, he's got him in his basement. That fits. <laughs> that totally fits with what they would do. He's being kept there as a running joke. And Marvel have put him in this film to maybe try and redeem the goodwill they may have lost with some people for <laughs> Iron Man 3. I've got no doubt that the reason this appearance has been put in is, okay, we can win them back with this. We will make this a moment that folk will go, ah, okay, we'll let you away with that. So yeah, I can see why they did it. Personally, I would have left them at the compound. 
he should have said, right, here's how you get to where you've got to go, or was it Morris? Was that the name of the... Um, yeah. yeah. Morris is going to lead you the way kind of thing, and like I'm saying a fond farewell to Morris and then him running off into the sunset. I don't think he was needed for the village sequence and going into that. As much as we got the little fun thing of him teaching the kids football in the village, which I thought was pretty funny, that was about it. And playing dead during the battle, (laughs) teaching Morris to play dead. Those were a couple of funny moments, but at that point, the film was getting more serious. The stakes were getting higher. There was a lot of relationship and development stuff that was going on. I was kind of like, okay, we now need to get on with the plot. We don't need the comic relief hanging about. Scene stealing is probably the wrong term. But sort of stealing some of these moments away with the humour or the gags or the bit. You don't need it. Maybe when they got to the edge of the forest in the car, before the trees parted ways and they drove through, that should have been the moment that he separated from the rest of the group, I think. For context, the Iron Man 3 twist I was not a fan of. I know it makes me sound like one of those fans that you you just are slave to the source material or whatever, but I don't think the twist works in the film. I do applaud them for managing to keep it a secret because you had the Mandarin being set up as the villain throughout all the marketing. So pulling the rug from under us is impressive. I'll give them that. It doesn't mean the rug pull's good. It means that you managed it. The actual detail itself I didn't like. And I think that Iron Man 3 as a film falls apart by then. All of its themes disappear and it just becomes nonsense after that point, which is a separate problem. You were saying about they brought them in here to redeem that in a way. They did that short film, All Hail the King, Hmm. which was on one of the Blu-rays. I can't remember which one, but it's on Disney Plus now. You can watch it. At the end of that, what he talks about happens where one of the Mandarin's goons, the Mandarin the very commas, it's Wenwu. One of Wenwu's goons takes him and says, the real Mandarin's not happy with you, come with me. And then they go. It's almost Marvel saying, don't worry, that guy in Iron Man 3, that's not all of the Mandarin you're going to get. We'll mm-hmm. bring him back at some point. Now they have and he's gone. They don't explicitly name him. The character is racially problematic anyway and always has been, but there would have been a way to modernise it, I think. And I think what they were trying to do with Ben Kingsley's version in the trailers for Iron Man 3 was a good step towards that. There was a lot of potential there with that modernisation if they rolled with it, but instead they turned him into a joke. And in this film, he's very much a joke. And that joke for me wears very thin very quickly because it's just the relentless, look how clueless this guy is. That's the joke all the time. I did laugh at the Planet of the Apes thing. The, The apes aren't really riding horses. They're just acting. They're pretending that they're riding horses. <laughs> Doesn't realise that they're people in suits as apes. So I still can't get my head around. I forgot it. that. That line. was funny. <laughs> Tony Stark calls him in Iron Man Three Sir Lawrence Oblivier. That's a very great description of that character. He just clueless. Oh, those birds are on fire. Oh, Morris says that's normal. <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's the same gag every time. The fact that he just doesn't understand how things work, but then weirdly he knows enough to play dead. I suppose that's obvious. People are dying around you. I'm just going to lie down and just look after myself here. No one will notice me. But you have to wonder what becomes of this character next. Does he stay with Nan and all them in that village now? You would imagine so. (laughs) I do agree with you that they should have got rid of him quicker than they did. Maybe once they find the village, that's him. He has no purpose. The intensity is ramping up at that point and they just keep undercutting it with his gags. But when he opens the car door, 
is it Shang-Chi that opens the car door and he's sitting there and he's like, I get sick in the back. <laughs> I think I've just referenced almost every joke that they make with him. It did great on me for a while. It's weird because the reveal of him being there is very similar to the reveal in Iron Man 3. He just comes out of nowhere and he's like, hi, I'm Trevor, and then tells you a lot about himself. I do remember my reaction in the cinema in Iron Man 3 the first time I saw it. He comes out of the toilet and he says... Ooh, you might not want to go in there for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then he notices Stark. And then it plays out from there. And I'm sitting there thinking, no way. Is that Ben Kingsley? And I kept waiting for the double rug pull for him to reveal that he was just pretending to be this clueless actor. But nope, it never happened. So I'm not saying that, oh yeah, they ruined the canon by making him not the Mandarin. I just don't think the twist worked. And I think it represents a point in the film where it falls apart and it stops being about anything. But in this film, he was okay, but... The style of humour started to grate on me very quickly, where that character's concerned. And I don't think he added an awful lot outside of that either. There's nothing to him, really. I agree with you. I think there's a certain point where they could have dropped him from the film. I think the point is, before they go into the forest, that's when he decides, right, I'm going to go off and find my own way and escape and go off and lead my happy life where I never impact on the uh, MCU again. (laughs) Min Morris was cute, and their little friendship was pretty decent as well. Oh, Morris has been made to get turned into plushies and all that, hasn't he? Yeah, we can get one when we get our Beeble from Legends of Tomorrow plushie. Yeah, I will not rest until I get a Beeble. (laughs) No one will. So... Last major character, Nan, played by Michelle Yeoh, who is Shang-Chi's aunt. She provides a bit of a mouthpiece for, this is what your mother would have wanted, this is what your mother stood for, I can show you how to do all the stuff your mother knew how to do, etc, etc. Plus she has that exposition wall that she shows them, here's the story of this thing, and here's the story of that thing, and you have to do this thing, and beat this thing, and do this thing, and this thing is dangerous, and whatever. So she does all that. I really like Michelle Yeoh. Was there not an interview she did where she talked about kicking Jackie Chan's ass many years ago (laughs) when they first appeared in the film? That's a good interview if you can find it. And we'll try and find it for the show notes, but it is out there. She talks about that. I feel like Michelle Yeoh has been showing up in a lot of nerdy content for the past few years. It seemed to start with Discovery when she played Captain Georgiou slash Emperor Georgiou. But she showed up in a lot of things. She was in Guardians of the Galaxy, not playing this character. Funnily enough, (laughs) two characters in the MCU she's played. I seem to see her everywhere. But not everywhere, in a lot of places. She was in Bond years ago, wasn't she? She was Tomorrow Never Dies, and they were thinking about doing a spin-off that they never did with that character. So I don't know. She's been about, I suppose. But certainly after Discovery, she seems to be showing up in a lot of nerdy stuff. And it's always great when she appears on screen. She's managed to get these really fantastic parts. Always love when she turns up. Is she the only person that's played two characters in the MCU? There must be other people that have done voices and appeared on screen as well. I think there's actors that have played more than one role. Yeah, they're never massive roles. At the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, she's one of the Ravagers, and those characters were the original Guardians in the comics. Ah, okay. If I was to think about it, I'd probably be able to come up with another couple of actors that have appeared in more than one MCU property as different characters. Because I do think that definitely exists, but I'm not sure who they are. But yeah, she's definitely one of them. And prominent-ish in that way. The character in Guardians 2, you might never see again. Oh, she does, that'd be quite funny. Maybe they can meet in a future film, those two (laughs) characters. I don't know. I did like Nan as a character. I think she represented the mother side of it without the mother being there and showed Shang-Chi how to do all the communing with nature stuff 
using that as a weapon or not as a weapon, but as a defensive tactic and understanding that there's more to strength than just strength. She's always very captivating, always has such authority, always significant. Because she doesn't get a lot of time in the film, but the relationship she forges with Shang-Chi, it's only really him. It's meaningful, it's important, and it stands out. You're spot on. For both of them, this is the first contact with the other side of the family that they've had. They've only had their father and their mother. Their father's family is long gone because he's been around for hundreds of years. The mother's family is in a secret hidden village that no one can go and visit. This is the first time that they get to go and see blood relatives. They get to hear what their parents were like when they were younger and find out about their past. Obviously their mother told them certain things, but they were so young at the time, they never got the full stories. So getting to hear all that from that character just really really worked on screen michelle you like you say comes across as this authoritative type and is able to impart those lessons those sort of wise lessons i think again it was a bit of a shame that it was just chug she that got that moment that sort of let me teach you this particular lesson i think that should have been both of them in there as well i think that would have worked a bit better glad to see her on screen i thought it was a fun character to have and glad that she wasn't killed off during the battle i was kind of worried i was like no (laughs) you need that words of wisdom character that they can go back to at some point she's one of the many backstory explanations isn't she there's Mm. several of them throughout the film but it worked well enough she commanded that exposition wall quite deftly didn't she (laughs) exposition wall i like it every film needs an exposition wall apparently every film that has deep-seated thousands of years ago type mythology associated with it that's true and on the subject of that mythology the plot is shang chi's rise to being a hero in a lot of ways but also you've got this late edition of this threat from another universe and they do explicitly say it's from another universe it's a soul-sucking creature and people thousands of years ago managed to trap it behind this wall so it's not a problem anymore and then you've got Wenwu just breaking it down and at first he just puts a couple of cracks in it which some of the creatures come out and start attacking the village stealing souls and so on and then eventually the big kahuna breaks out <laughs> but it's fine because there's a dragon under the sea that's just been biding its time that Shang-Chi can commune with and fly around on and it's Katie that kills the soul harvesting creature i forget they do name it that kind of what it was called but she's the one that kills it because if it sucks our dragon's soul it'll become unstoppable says some guy because he knows that for some reason that plot in a way seems to come from nowhere but it does enable a kick-ass action sequence so i don't really have any complaints on that score like you say it does enable a kick-ass action sequence i'm trying to remember it's like katie has to shoot the arrow towards its throat to stop it being able to suck souls because that's where its soul sucking organ is presumably that's its weak spot it's its video game weak spot it's the video game weak spot that'll stop it being able to soul suck and then they can get on and kill it at that point you do question why they didn't maybe try that the first time rather than just shoving it behind a big wall but who am i to question such things they didn't have a good enough archer back then that might be the case didn't have someone with a good enough shot so they just went you know what we'll lure it behind the wall it'll all be fine but yeah it does enable that sequence it's the regular problem with a lot of the marvel films is at the end of the film you've got to have the big cgi-a-thon in this case it wasn't so much people blasting different colored light beams at each other with explosions in the background in this case it was two cgi dragon monsters and multiple little soul sucky creature monsters that you had instead and different colored rings and different colored rings and i was also thinking every time they splash into the water of the poor people that went to see that film in 4dx 
and we'd be getting <laughs> scooshed in the face every five seconds as part of that sequence. That's a good maybe ten minutes or so of the film that you're getting absolutely drenched by water jets. Yeah, that's what you get for going to 40X. So. Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Did it once, never again. But the plot itself, the threat itself isn't that important because the idea is that when we're being misguided is the threat. That's the problem. And the creature escaping from the wall is the consequence of that. I don't think they really set it up as being as big a threat as it needs to, especially since they said this is the most powerful thing we've ever faced and it getting out means we're all dead and then they defeat it relatively quickly. It's very neat in that way and it goes against how they set it up because it was so easy. Fair enough, it took Shang-Chi mastering the Ten Rings and throwing them at <laughs> the creature and then exploding and whatever. But at the same time, it just seems like this isn't as big a threat as you've made it out to be. No, it doesn't seem like that you wouldn't have a bigger plan for this after all this time. You've got the big wall, the big gate keeping it in, and a little village of people with dragon-scale weapons to shoot it but no one up at the door where it's going to come out you've not got turrets and guards and anything up there no they're all staying in the village at the other side of the lake (laughs) well a lot of good that'll do if it flies off (laughs) you get the little explanation at the beginning of oh well this is just a tiny village but our society's actually massively technologically advanced we've got these big cities that you just can't see from here. It's this idyllic lake with the deadly soul-sucking dragon behind a gate. And then past here is Wakandan-level technology just out of shot. (laughs) We stay here with the dragon scale armour and arrow set. There are people that just live the way they lived, right? Their magic was fine. They had these magical creatures surrounding them. It's this hidden oasis that's stuck in time in a lot of ways. It's this timeless oasis of culture and tradition as opposed to wakanda where it's always the new hotness where they're always making the next best thing where shuri is like you need a new suit your old suit is more than fine but here's a new one because new is always better but these are people that are committed to their tradition they don't need anything else that's the whole point they've mastered inner peace in their own way so they have everything they need to survive and thrive and they train all day it's like katie says you just pick something and spend your whole life becoming amazingly good at Mm. it And that's about it. And then the obvious contrast to that is Wenwu and his henchmen who are the antithesis of that lifestyle and they're to be condemned for that reason. The film doesn't quite give you that, but it's in Mm. there. I do love the bit where the weapons that Wenwu's people bring do nothing to the soul-sucking creatures. You have that bit where they're they're holding the village hostage because they've overpowered them because they have superior firepower. But then they realise their weapons do nothing and they're like, let's work together. That's a good plan. Everybody just (laughs) take up arms. And the Razor Fist guy, that's what's on his car, isn't it? Razor Fist. If I check the IMDB, I'm pretty sure that's what he's down as. Yeah, Razor Fist. He takes his sword off and he puts a dragon scale sword on (laughs) his arm. So he can fight. There isn't much to that character, but he's just a big guy that fights. And that was cool. It was a really good way of integrating that. And it's that moment of understanding, I guess. It's that, oh no, new isn't always better. These guys have got it figured out. They know how to handle this problem. We'll go with that. And it gets better. A lot of people die, obviously, which they don't make enough of. In fact, they make a joke out of it. We thought we were going to die. A lot of people died. We lost a lot of good people that day. And they kind of make a joke out of it, which is weird. Because a lot of people did die, senselessly, because of Wenwu and what he was obsessed Mm. with. I don't think it's quite the anti-Wakanda, but it gives you that vibe. And it's this 
interesting other little pocket of the MCU they can explore further later. It's got magical creatures there. It's got weird horses, as Trevor says, and all these other weird creatures. Phoenixes, I guess. That's what the flying flaming birds might be. Yeah, kind of along those lines. I mean, I've not read a lot of the comics to do with this. Nor me. I'm not huge on Shang-Chi myself. I don't know how much this is explored or if it's a little pocket that they've created for the MCU at all. But yeah, it's an interesting universe. Like you say, they say it's like a portal to a different universe, a different world. And then if the creature got through to our side of that or the MCU side of that, it would wreak havoc and devastation. So that's why the villages at the other side of the lake is to protect that gateway to the other universe rather than protect the gateway into theirs. Do you think this is the kind of stuff they might have shown us in Iron Fist if they'd had any money? <laughs> I'm not sure to show us this kind of stuff. I fought a dragon, honest. I fought a dragon. <laughs> Maybe they would tie more into that. I don't know if they had more of a budget, would they go more down that line? Possibly. It did give me the Kunlun vibes. It gave me Kunlun vibes, as in how that was described to us in that show. In some ways, the dragon being the obvious one. He fought a dragon and that's how he got the Iron Fist. There's no Iron Fist to earn here. There's just rings. <laughs> But similar sort of idea in a way, a magical hidden place. Yeah. Maybe we'll get Iron Fist in a future Shang-Chi film. I'm sure that's on people's list, isn't it? I don't know. Not many people like Iron Fist, do they? If they can redeem Trevor Slattery. (laughs) Danny Rand next. (laughs) Yeah, Danny Rand, yeah. I'm sure we'll get him back at some point. Good point. To talk about the action sequences then, we've talked about the third act climax. We can sort of finish talking about it. I like the aerial battle between dragons and riding on the back of a dragon and stuff. Apparently they built a practical dragon face. I read that somewhere, so that's a bit interesting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, they built an actual dragon face. Yeah, they built a real dragon <laughs> face. <laughs> Marvel have got into some pretty hairy genetic engineering for their films now. They're just making creatures instead of... Well, making them in a computer. Well, that Disney money. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's unstoppable. But apparently they built the practical, at least the face that you could hang on to and stuff like that. I thought the third act sequence was good. There was a lot of good little bits to it. I really liked the electric crossbows when Wu's guys had. They were quite fun. And the martial arts sequences in it. And just the whole setup, I enjoyed it. It looked great and... It flowed really well, and it was a really exciting sequence. Yeah, I'm with you. I liked the electric crossbows. It sort of ties into that origin story that you see at the beginning. This is a traditional warrior, and he would, of course, go for, yeah, I'm going to have my guys out there with a modern take on a crossbow. So yeah, that fitted really well for me. I enjoyed the final action sequence. I think it was really well done. To me, it's still massive creatures and fighting and you kind of lose a lot of stuff in that action. And like you say, trying to work out the consequences. I think where this film worked really well was in the smaller scale fights. I'm going to call them smaller scale fights because there were less people and there were no dragons. (laughs) That's how you define smaller scale. A smaller scale. There were no dragons, there was less people. (laughs) So take that. Things like, we've obviously got to touch on like the bus sequence, for example, at the beginning of the film, which was amazing. Just so well done. I was massively impressed with that. And even seeing, I mean, you were talking about them building a full dragon face. Seeing how they shot some of that, bus sequence i think it's the marvel account i think put some of the shots on instagram and there's a few other that have appeared of how they filmed all those different elements and stuck some of them together and it is really impressive to see doing that confined 
fight sequence using basically every part of that bus got used as part of that sequence and then making it fun at the same time adding that bit of mcu humor to it with the guy live streaming it on his cell phone (laughs) it just worked really really well the bus sequence was superb it was obviously augmented with cgi Mm. to make it flow faster and stuff like that and to make shang chi's moves a bit more not inhuman just to accentuate the skill and his ability and, and all that stuff there was a few allusions to speed the keanu reeves film obviously it's on a bus the brakes are cut, it can't stop. You've got Aquafina driving the bus, Sandra Bullock style, etc. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as speed. It's not that we have to keep this bus <laughs> over 50 miles an hour or we'll blow up. But it's along those lines a little bit. It's a clear influence in a way. But yeah, it uses space really well because it must be really hard coming up with something like that in such a confined space. And I imagine Marvel probably cheated to make it happen. There was probably a lot more done outside and they composited it inside and stuff. But I think they used the space really well. I like the cutting the handrails and him using the turn signal, <laughs> the bus stop signal. You'll know the signal when you see it and it's literally that signal. And you had some long takes. We often criticise action movies for not doing enough long takes because they're disguising stuntmen or bad stunt work or whatever. We get some long takes of them bouncing about and swinging about on the bus and whatever so yeah it's a really cool sequence really exciting really kinetic really fun just so well put together and it comes at that point in the film where it's the needle drop moment it's that oh actually yeah he can do all this already he is a martial artist (laughs) it just happens at that bit and it's just the perfect way to do it i wasn't expecting it at that point despite the fact i'd watched a bunch of the trailers that had some of that bus sequence in it (laughs) i had gone from my head when i was watching the film so it still came as a surprise despite the fact i'd seen umpteen pictures of this bus sequence i liked how it started as well just so innocuous the guy comes up it's like give me the pendant when the guy walks up and gets in his face and he's like how's it going (laughs) And that's his only reaction. It's like, give me the pendant. He's like, what? Then they start fighting and you see that he's very well equipped to deal with that situation. Then you get Razor Fist shows up with a big (laughs) sword in his arm and people are like, what the hell? I don't think people are as terrified as they needed to be on the bus, I think. People were taking it in their stride a bit too much. But you had that joke about, yeah, I'm live streaming it. And then it lets Shang-Chi become a bit of a celebrity, Mm. the bus guy or whatever they call him. And you have that woman that's writing her research paper on the bus. They draw attention to it a couple of minutes earlier. And Shang-Chi picks up her laptop and gets it cut in half. That's so sorry. <laughs> That's hours of work gone forever. You'll never get that back. If he didn't cut the hard drive, she'll be okay. She'll really get it back. Yeah, it depends on where the hard drive sits in that particular model. <laughs> Were you thinking that at the time? Were you like, I wonder where that hard drive I wonder where the hard drive was, was on that laptop. Yeah, that poor person. I hope they have a cloud backup. <laughs> Was that a MacBook she was using? Probably was. was, (laughs) Everybody has Macs in these films. On a complete side tangent from that, someone pointed out recently that villains for product placement are not allowed to use Apple products. Interesting. So in a film, if you see someone using an iPhone, they're not a villain. There you go. Mm. It's part of the contract, apparently. Or if you see someone that's about to betray them later in the film. Not yeah. using an iPhone. You're like, they're going to betray them later. Spoilers for Knives Out, which Craig can either cut or keep in, but all the family use iPhones except one member of the family. Ooh. <laughs> I wonder which one. <laughs> Interesting. Is it someone who's perhaps in an MCU? <laughs> it could be tied back to the MCU, couldn't it? Anyway, carry on. <laughs> it could be. 
<laughs> so the bus sequence was my personal favourite. I really enjoyed it. Followed closely by the scaffolding fight. I thought that was great as well. The different levels. Mm. The way they used the reflection as well. They filmed a lot of the reflection on the window and used that for the action. And then you had the bit where Shang-Chi gets thrown inside the building. It reminded me of Skyfall actually, when he goes after that sniper, I think it is, and they're in that big neon-lit room. Ah, yeah, that's quite a nice scene. neon backlit room. It reminded me of that, so that was cool. The tension was there when Katie was hanging on in the bamboo support that was slowly falling, and then she gets caught by Xiling. It was all good. Great sequence. When I came out of the film, that was one of the sequences that was stuck in my head. Again, it was just really creative and different. With the reflections, I don't know if it was CGI reflections or they were actually working with real glass panes there for reflection, because I know that can be really tricky when filming, especially with that kind of, like you say, stunt work and everything going on. I just thought that was really creative and different. It's not your traditional fight thing. I would say it's got some similar ties to the bus sequence because they were using the poles the seat holders and the grab rails on the bus in a very similar way to how they were using them in scaffold but it was just a different way of doing the sequence sort of breaking down all the different levels it was very very neat yeah it was tense there was the time limit because katie was Mm. going to fall to her death any second it's all that good stuff. I think it built itself as a really engaging action beat. And this is kind of throughout. There's a few sequences where the rings are used. I like how they complement the martial arts work. So it doesn't feel like they're just here for something. They're just here just to give the film its name or whatever. They are actually a proper kinetic part of the action. They complement the moves on display. And well, they're an extension of particularly Wen Wu's body. He knows how to use them so well that he uses them so naturally. And you see a bit of that in the opening montage where he's like swinging them about and it makes a shield around them. It's when he throws them at people and they come back to him. And he's kind of always aware of where they are and what they're doing and how to control them. That goes to Shang-Chi later as well. And Lee as well, when she's using them, when she's taking them off him and things. So they feel like a natural part of any combat sequence that they're in. And Shang-Chi turning them gold and having them circling around them and things like that. It reminded me of Sonic, just these gold rings just (laughs) going everywhere. (laughs) I imagine that when the film and that sequence becomes available on demand very, very soon, someone is going to do some sort of cut with the Sonic ring sounds to that moment that's definitely going to appear if someone has not pirated it and done it already that'll definitely he'll be fine as long as he keeps one ring just one ring is all he needs (laughs) and then he can take a hit (laughs) (laughs) i liked how they were used again because i said it earlier on i've not read the source material i know that you said earlier on that these are meant to have more powers is that right yes so the 10 rings in the comics are actually jewels that sit on rings. What they are is the power source for a crashed alien ship that the Mandarin finds. And he takes these jewels and he puts them into rings. In the different colours, they have different abilities. Some of them shoot fire, some of them are whatever. I can't remember exactly what the abilities are. I could look them up, but I'm not going to. But they all do different things. I was kind of looking forward to them doing that maybe in Iron Man 3 because we've had Thor, so magic is part of the context of the universe now so it's not so outlandish to have iron man dealing with magic plus it's technology versus magic which is a really cool dichotomy to deal with so it could have been iron man with all his armors just getting blasted by these magical rings and they're not magical in the comics i mean they are but they aren't they're a power source an alien power source actually it's a dragon ship fing fang foom is the name of the dragon piling on the ship he's not a dragon he's an alien that looks like a dragon it's an important difference, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, so that's what they are in the comics. Whereas in this, they are just nondescript, powerful things that do stuff. And mostly they're used to hit people. 
but they're used to make magical barriers and things. But mostly they're just used to hit people. Yeah, they're mainly used to hit or to thrust them away from the ground to kind of fly, but not quite. You get a little bit of that going on as well. They're more bangles than rings as well. (laughs) Good point. Good point. They're more bangles. The ten bangles doesn't quite have the same ring to it, though. Ah. It it doesn't inspire fear, (laughs) no. It does not. It does not inspire fear, yeah. Ah, here comes ten bangles. Better run and tremble. (laughs) Here comes the ten bangles. Do not cross the ten bangles. They will kill you. It's a lot more of an uphill battle in the PR war, that one, isn't it? Presumably now, like you say, the colour changed when Zhang Shi got a hold of them, so maybe they can activate more powers or become more powerful or, or change. I mean, they've got all the potential for them to... Well, they can write whatever they want, really, can't they? From the post-credits, they're investigating them and no one can find an explanation. So they can go whatever direction they want they can do the comic book origin of a crash ship with components or go down the magic angle or just leave them unexplained some things are unexplained (laughs) they just say that he found them at some point they don't say how he found them so imagine the origin of them or the origin of how they came to appear on earth will be the subject of some debate in the near future at some point. And I do get why they changed them to the worn on the arms instead of the fingers, because it would immediately invite comparisons to the Infinity Stones. Hang on, you've got different coloured gems that do different things. Where have we seen that before? So instead, we're going to have to do these nondescript 10 rings that we use to hit people that have potentially more beneath the surface that we don't know about as of yet. Because as you say, they do suggest that there's more to them, but that doesn't forgive the fact that in this film, they are very simple. And used very simply. I think one of the more interesting things about them, to be honest, is the fact, and I can't remember if it was you I was discussing it with or I've read it somewhere else, is the fact that this is one of the few times that you see devices that prolong life but don't drive the wearer insane. As much as we've said that he's come out with this villain plot, in the end it's driven by his desire to see his wife, his love again, It's not that he's worn the Ten Rings for so long that he's gone mad and wanting to reclaim power again. This is one that doesn't seem to have a downside, maybe. And they weren't addictive because he was able to put them away without thinking about it too much. Yeah. It wasn't that he was drawn back to them for that reason. His drawback was revenge. I never should have taken them off because people didn't fear me, came into the house with no consequence and took his wife, so... You never got the impression that taking them off was difficult for him. Because when you consider how long he wore them for versus how long he didn't Mm. wear them for, you don't get enough context. But it doesn't seem like he was tempted to put them back on at any point during the relationship with his wife or bringing up his children until the point that he lost her. Yeah, well, they would have gotten in his way if he was doing the dance game. Or he could have factored them in in some way. Dance moves with the Ten Rings, it'd be so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what they did during the courtship fight, in a way, I suppose. That's what was happening there. But I also quite like the idea that Wen Wu believed that he had mastered them, but hadn't, because there's something beneath the surface with them. There's a lot that isn't known about them. But it's kind of, he got to a point of mastery of them and assumed that was it, and didn't bother looking further into it. I suppose he had what he needed out of them at that point, didn't he? But maybe he thought that was all there was and didn't think beyond that. Yeah. But obviously there is more to them because they can turn a different colour at the very least. They can turn a different colour and they can be manipulated by another as well. The fact that Lee and Shang-Chi were able to stop the rings and control them and take them from him 
and hold them and <laughs> run them in circles and go, right, you're not getting them back. <laughs> I'm just going to keep them in orbit. That shows that there's more to it than just what he was doing. And this is a good point to come on to our MCU connections then. So the Ten Rings, they're being investigated in the post credit scene that features Wong, who's in other parts of the film. We'll talk about him in a minute. Bruce Banner, who is no longer hulked out for some reason. And Captain Marvel, who's still around and grown her hair out again. So things have happened. I like that scene because you had these three important pillars to look at something. You had Wong representing the magical side. He's like, I don't know what these are. You have Banner representing the science side. And he says, I don't know what these are. And you've got Captain Marvel representing the cosmic side of things. She has no idea what they are. And it's the, they're not made of vibranium. Are they Shatari? No. Are they magical? I don't know. So none of them know, but I like how we're going to need an expert from every corner of this investigation to comment on these things. And they're all stumped. So when you know that these people that know their way around these things have no idea what they are, that there's a mystery <laughs> there. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's the perfect circle. And of course they would have that in the MCU at this point, where, right, we need to consult on this weird thing that's just appeared, or this anomaly that we've got. Right, who are we going to call in? Well, we've got a space expert, we've got a science expert, and we've got a magic expert. Perfect. There we go. There's nothing in theory that they shouldn't be able to figure out given time. That's your panel. Yeah, and then you've got Captain Marvel's like, actually, I've got other things to do, so see you later. <laughs> and then she disappears, which potentially sets up her own next film. As in, Captain Marvel will be dealing with something in her next film. There's a <laughs> shock set up for you. Bet you never saw that coming. There's the clickbait headline. Yeah. But Banner being there was interesting because you had that whole thing in Endgame where they put the brain and the brawn together in the body of the Hulk. And now he's back to looking like Banner again. Whether that's just his hologram avatar or not, I don't know. Or whether there's something more to it. We discussed that before. Has Banner killed the Hulk? <laughs> the, the personality mm. that was the Hulk? Has he just killed it? But why has he gone back? That might be a setup for his role in She-Hulk where we find out more about the ins and outs of that. I think that's definitely where that's going to appear as She-Hulk. Yeah, but it is interesting that he appeared as Banner again, because I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to see Banner in this film full stop, but I didn't expect his next appearance to have him as human rather than Hulk. Yeah, that's really true. Like you say, I think they're aiming that towards the line of She-Hulk in there. And no, I was not expecting Banner in the post-credits. Yeah, I was expecting Wong, just because of the way that they finished the film. Yeah, because he was there. <laughs> but I was not expecting Banner, I was not expecting Captain Marvel, but I kind of like it. Okay, cool. They've got this sort of consultation little group together that's running the show. It doesn't really tell you what the situation is with Not Quite Shield, that Nick Fury is not quite running, but kind of running, but not running at the same time. Scroll Shield. Scroll Shield and whatever organisation they're called now. So, yeah, I thought it was an interesting little tease. They did pretty well, again, with all the little hints coming through. I was not expecting Wong to appear as much in this film either. It's only twice, It's only twice, but the thing is, it was when the initial trailer went out and people went, oh, that's Wong fighting the Abomination. I was like, (laughs) no, it isn't. They wouldn't put that. Why would that appear in this film? Well, it did. I was like, this is people freeze-framing and just assuming too much. Because I think it was originally one frame or something of it in the corner of a screen (laughs) or something. And people were like, oh, it's Wong and the Abomination having a fight. It's like, nah. They totally did it. So fair play to them. Well done. Yeah, we'll get on to Wong in a second. Just want to finish off the whole Ten Rings bit. It was interesting because when that scene started, because it starts off with a close-up on the scan of the rings, or the ring that they're scanning. And Wong's like, 
well, I don't know. What do you think? And then you hear a voice. And my first thought was, is this going to be Doctor Strange? Because it takes a second to pan round. And then I was like, oh, look, it's Banner. Well, oh, crazy. It was a genuine surprise. I did not expect it. And it was really good. But the rings, it's they give you that tease of later. But something's activated. There's a signal going out. Something is coming. And I don't know what's it going to be. Is it going to be Kang? As we discussed in Loki, maybe not. Is it going to be something else? Is it going to go nowhere? Is it going to be phase six before we find out about any mm-hmm. of this? Who knows? There seems to be the suggestion of we're not building up to one big bad necessarily like we were before. We're building up to a few different things. There's a few possibilities out there that are coming to fruition potentially. And it's quite good to be at the front end of this again because we got the tease of Thanos after the Avengers. And we knew from that point on it would only be a matter of time until Thanos shows up and causes trouble. Now we know that there's something going to be happening, but we don't know what it is. And it's quite cool that we're going to be teased again for the next few films before we start getting answers and TV shows. Yeah, definitely. It's a good time to be watching this stuff. I know they've said that they're not aiming to do a big overarching thing yet, but you can't help see these little details and go, ooh, is this teasing something? Is this adding a little bit to the background for something yeah, else? What could you know? this be? Yeah, because now it is TV and film. There's loads of places to explore the background and establish more. Yeah, but yes, Wong and the Abomination. It's a very small bit and they have a quick fight and Wong calls him a meal and he chastises him for hitting him too hard and apparently it was Tim Roth that voiced the grunts. He's going to be in She-Hulk as well, so I imagine he just took time off from the prep for that or whatever just to film some grunts that they would put into this film, but I thought that was funny. The Abomination looks more like his comic book counterpart. He has the fins and stuff that the version of the Incredible Hulk didn't, so yeah, okay, comic accurate looks that work on screen. I'm always for that. It was a very brief fight, but it was fun. But it seems like they've got a bit of a scam going on there. They're trying to make some coin. Yeah, definitely doing some sort of hustle on there. Because they're like, oh, next time, don't hit that way, don't do it that way. And the sort of background thing, it looked like Wong was taking him back to his holding cell. Every once in a while, breaking him out of prison so that he can have a fight with him. <laughs> How did that relationship even start? How did that begin? You can only imagine. You need to read the prequel comic. Yeah. I don't know if there is a prequel comic. I don't want to know. I'm happy just speculating as to how that relationship could have started. But I love how playful Wong is in these appearances. In Doctor Strange, there's the bit where Strange makes fun of him because he has one name like Beyonce and then the next scene you see him, he's listening to Beyonce on his iPod or whatever. And then you see him in Infinity War and he's trying to con Strange into buying him lunch. <laughs> What's attachment to the physical is detachment from <laughs> The spiritual, I'll tell the guys at the deli, they'll make you a metaphysical ham on rye. Mm-hmm. Just great banter there. But I like that Wong seems to pretend he's this centred, wise sage. And he is just a bit of a clown, really, isn't he? He likes to have fun. He likes to play around with people. He clearly has little side gigs on the go that he doesn't really tell people about. It's notable when he shows up to grab Shang-Chi and Katie at the bar. He steals the drink mm-hmm. and then makes a comment about it's on him or whatever. He says something about it, but he just walks up and steals the drink just casually and drinks it. I love the character and I'd love to see him go on to just do more appearances like this. You get to the end of an MCU film, a portal appears in the background, out steps Wong. I'm here to recruit you for something. He could be the Coulson or Nick Fury of this phase of Marvel stuff <laughs> he totally could be the connecting tissue and i'd be all for that you're right he's been fun and everything he appeared the fact that they then took him off to do karaoke and everything like that it's like yep oh the karaoke stuff i love that callback it's the, it's late we should go back or <laughs> <laughs> they're doing karaoke it's really good 
I forget what song the three of them sing. It sounds awful. They all sound terrible, but it was a very funny scene. I think they did Don't Go Breaking My Heart at one point, but I can't remember if that was the final... One. That was at the start. Oh, that was at the that, start, that at the so start. I can't remember they, what the end one was. Yeah, me neither. But it doesn't matter. They do that, and it's funny. So yeah, Wong is very playful, and I love that, and I want to see more of him. He's going to be in Spider-Man, so we'll see him in a couple of months. Not long to go. Where he walks off with his suitcases in the frozen sanctum. I'm off to fight the abomination, I'll see you later. Yeah, well, his suitcases, he's running off. I love that that's become a meme already. <laughs> I think Wong will help me move house in a couple of weeks. Don't see why not. <laughs> Wong, I want you to open up a portal and push all these boxes through, thanks. Yeah, I mean, he would open the portal and he'd probably get his pal the Abomination to carry all the heavy goods. Oh God, no, I can imagine the Abomination, he'd crush my TV. (laughs) Maybe this isn't a good idea. The only other MCU connection I picked up on, other than the fact that we mentioned the Mandarin, they refer to the events of Iron Man 3, the blip is mentioned. They talk about it seizing the day because we live in a world where people could just wink out of existence for five years, something like that. They mention that, that's at the beginning of the film. The only mention of it, though, we've covered the consequences of the blip in various TV shows, but it seems the films are giving it a wide berth. I say the films, we've had one, and it's this one. I suppose Eternals will be covering it quite extensively. That's true. Yeah, Eternals is covering a little bit, and we kind of got a jokey take to an extent in Spider-Man, didn't we? I don't think at this point we're ever going to get my gritty horror sequence of what happens in those five years. The presumable absolute nightmare that was there. We only got the little bit in Endgame but not much. That's the TV show that I want to see. You get a sense of it in some of the shows they've done so far and Hawkeye might do a bit more of it as well. Yeah, well that's true actually. I'm forgetting about Hawkeye. As does everybody. Poor Hawkeye. Poor Clint. I think we've about covered it. I think that's about on Shang-Chi. So is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention? Uh, No, I think we covered it all. I'm sure I'll think of something once we've stopped recording. As always happens, yeah. Okay, so why don't you give us your final statements, final thoughts on Shang-Chi, the the Legends of the Ten Rings. Really enjoyed it. Like I said, one of my favourite villains, and inverted commas, of the MCU so far through the story. I think it fits immediately into the universe with characters that I really, really want to see again. I'll echo that. I love the film, love the characters, love the action. was just really engaged by it throughout. Such a great time at the cinema. So enjoyable. Marvel doing what they do best. Once again, give us more Wong. I want more Wong. But as long as you give me more Wong, I'll be a happy man. Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. And Wong. <laughs> it's, it's the title. That's what and it should be Wong. called. <laughs> Just put and Wong at the end of every MCU film. Black Widow and Wong. There's a team up. Well, oh, wouldn't you always see that? <laughs> we'll never see it. But yeah, that's it. So that was our conversation about Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, the latest Marvel movie. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And I would like to thank our in-house artist, Isaac, for the artwork that complements this podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you, Chris, for joining in this discussion. You're welcome. If you enjoyed what you heard here, then please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any major podcasting app. And Apple users, you can give us a rating and a comment. That would really help the show. That'd be great. What's our favourite rating number, though, Chris? Ten rings. Sorry, five stars. Five stars. Ten rings. (laughs) Give us ten rings out of five stars. (laughs) Yeah, I give this film 10 out of 10 rings. If you want to chat to us about Shang-Chi, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel, comics, anything else, you can catch us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. 